trigger warning. Learning to dream again. Anne alters life with schizophrenia. Anne alters story unpacks the experience of living with a mental illness in a sanest society where people diagnosed with psychiatric disabilities are systematically silenced, neglected, and even abused. In her narrative, we learn about what it is like living with suicidal ideation and the experience of forced hospitalization and recovering from patterns of abuse, including sexual assault, and predatory relationships, including a relationship with a mental health care provider outside of the family who made unwelcome references to their own incestuous impulses, as well as on themes of isolation and emotional manipulation. Through the telling of Anne's story, we are also introduced to Jennifer Matisa, the interviewer, who shares her own raw experiences of surviving emotional and sexual abuse. While both of these stories document the trials and trauma that can come with living with a marginalized identity, they are really testaments to strength and resilience. A list of resources that can provide support if you experience any distress or discomfort is available in the front matter of this book. It's important to be aware of these resources as well as share them with others so we are all equipped and empowered with information that helps all of us stay safe. Learning to Dream Again, Anne Alters Life with Schizophrenia by Jennifer Matisa. Sometime in 2017, Pittsburgh native Anne Alter went to a meeting at an office building that is part of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center's Western Psychiatric Hospital, known by clinicians who work there, of which I am one, as WPH, and by people who grew up in Pittsburgh, of which I am also one, as Western Psych. Anne, 55, is what the hospital's doctors and therapists would call, in clinical notation, a patient well-known to WPH. She has been receiving treatment from clinicians there since she was 15. From age 10, she had gone to St. Francis Hospital, which was WPH's legendary forerunner in caring for Pittsburgh's residents struggling with mental illness and substance abuse problems, for panic episodes, obsessive and intrusive thoughts, compulsive and ritualistic behavior, and the dramatic mood swings of bipolar disorder. More recently, which is to say for the span of her adulthood, she has seen WPH outpatient clinicians who specialize in the treatment of schizophrenia, a disabling mental illness that distorts people's thoughts and perceptions of reality. The epithet schizo is often used to refer to someone who has disassociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. But that's not what schizophrenia is. Basically, Folks with untreated schizophrenia can't tell what's real and what's not. Anne says schizophrenia was always there in the background of my early childhood years. At 23, she began to experience delusions. For many folks who haven't had contact with anyone with schizophrenia, which is to say most people, when they hear the word delusions, they think hallucinations, 
But Anne doesn't see things with her eyes or hear things with her ears that aren't real. Rather, her delusions make her believe things that are not real. For example, she might believe that she is a specific person like Jesus Christ. She also has what she says is the impression of voices in my head. I'm not hearing them with my ears. Having worked at a psychiatric hospital, I've learned that all of us, more or less all of the time, have voices in our minds that tell us to do stuff, and sometimes these voices can disturb us with their intensity and the content of their messages. You forgot to pay your credit card bill for the second month in a row. You're such an idiot. But these internal voices generally don't persuade us to follow directives that may endanger our lives. When Anne's illness is not controlled with antipsychotic medications, the voices convince her that she has to do certain things. If she decides to carry out their directives, she does things that land her in the hospital. Some of Anne's delusions have required her to be hospitalized for months. Because her mental illness is so serious, Anne can't drive. She can't work. She has had to give up many of her dreams and desires for her life. And she has learned to be rigorous about taking her medications and about practicing daily discernment with the help of her care team of whether the thoughts in her mind are grounded in reality or a part of her illness. The meeting she was attending at Western Psych on that particular day was an informational session about a potential program for people with schizophrenia who also have musical abilities. Anne has sung all her life, and she loves to perform, even though, like many performers, she has terrible stage fright. Earlier in her life, she had planned to make her living as a performer. She earned her bachelor's degree in theater arts from Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana. I was completely out of my head in college, but I still love the school and the education that I got, she says. She would write 20 pages per day in her journal and dance and roller skate around campus. I was seriously into dance in college, she says. Academically, it was very hard because I was suicidally depressed, alternating with mania, and I couldn't concentrate. As a high schooler at the Ellis School in Pittsburgh, she had gone to Western Psych for treatment of depression, but she says, I didn't realize about the mania until I was in college. The schizophrenia and its terrifying delusions came a little later. After the informational session, she approached the guy they said would be in charge of the musical program and asked whether she might sing him a song. Other people might be able to do this, just sing a song impromptu. Hey, dude, listen to me. I got this. But for someone with lifelong panic disorder plus schizophrenia plus bipolar disorder, it can be a stretch to believe you can do anything you really want to do without it falling apart in your mind before you can make your body carry out your own wishes. Or even to believe that the thought that you ought to sing for the guy is real. The guy assented, and she sang a cappella, the Jewish prayer for healing, Mishé Bieriach, a version which, according to the translation and prefers, goes in part, bless us with the power of your healing. Bless us with the power of your hope. May our hearts be filled with understanding and strengthened by the power of your love. 
Because of the fact that Anne's illnesses have sprung disastrous symptoms on her with little or no warning, because she loves to make music, and because she loves the Jewish community she has found at her Reformed congregation, Temple Sinai, this particular song is important to her. Anne knew nothing about the guy she was singing for. She just hoped he would like the way she was singing, even if he didn't understand the meaning of the Hebrew words. I knew absolutely zip zero nada about Flavio when I sang for him that day, she says. The guy, Flavio Chamis, is a conductor and composer known, among other things, for having worked as Leonard Bernstein's assistant conductor. A native of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and a longtime resident of Pittsburgh, where his wife holds the principal viola chair in the Pittsburgh Symphony, Chamis received his education in conducting and composition in Israel, Germany, and Austria. Apart from lecturing internationally about music, he has been a member of the Brazilian and Classical Music Committees of the Latin Grammys, and he writes his own award-winning music. And the cherry on top, Chamis is also Jewish, so he recognized Anne's song that day. Chamis ultimately put together a group of four musicians, two vocalists, of which Anne is one, a guitarist, and a bassist. They call themselves Infinity. At the 35th annual Pittsburgh Schizophrenia Conference in 2018, Anne, with the guitarist David Baird, performed live for the participants. The following year, the entire group performed and participated in a panel discussion on stage in front of the clinicians attending the conference. For the 2020 meeting, which took place virtually, Chamis produced a 30-minute documentary video about the group's work and its effects on their recovery from schizophrenia. It's called Recovery because even though they are living with a mental illness that can never be cured, or, as Anne is, living with more than one illness, they each still have much to recover and to recover from. Before her early 20s, when Anne began to experience the delusions of schizophrenia, the big ticket item in her collection of mental illnesses, as she once wrote to Chamis. She had already been treated for bipolar disorder, OCD, and panic disorder. At age 10, she was treated at St. Francis in a children's psychiatric ward for three months. Imagine spending three months of your fifth grade year in the psych ward. Imagine going back to school or trying to go back to school after such a long stay in the booby hatch, which is how Anne refers to the psychiatric hospital, any psychiatric hospital, in a series of social media posts she has written during the COVID-19 pandemic called the Booby Hatch Chronicles. At nine, she was taken to a private psychiatrist. She spent the next 13 years making her way through a series of private therapist's offices. Then, at 21, she began to have delusions. The second decade of life is generally the time during which schizophrenia's delusions begin showing up. If folks with schizophrenia have co-occurring mental disorders, it can take quite a bit of skill to get the right combination of medications, plus an alliance with a therapist who actually knows how to treat folks who are struggling with psychosis. Relatively few therapists have that training. It wasn't clear to her treatment team at that point 
that the delusions were in fact signs of her schizophrenia. People with bipolar disorder, for example, can also experience delusions during manic episodes, and bipolar is much more common than schizophrenia. Anne's psychiatrist gave her two antipsychotic medications and lithium, a mood stabilizer commonly used for bipolar disorder. Mental illness can make people a target for others who would prey upon them, especially mental illness and young people who don't have much experience with the world. It's also well known that victims of violent crime generally are targeted by people who know them. After Anne graduated from college, very ill and not sure where to go, she says, she began seeing a clinician who emotionally and sexually abused her. He took me on an overnight trip, told me he feared my thoughts would hurt him, and told me he had trouble thinking of me as just a daughter because he struggled with sexual feelings for his actual daughter, Anne says. He also used to simply hold her, and because she had been so lonely for so long and felt so misunderstood by society, she says, I lived for this. I tolerated terrible things because I needed my connection to him so badly. If you think this experience of Anne's is different from other women's experiences because she had mental illness, consider some of the stories of sexual harassment and abuse that have come out in the Me Too movement. You don't have to be experiencing florid symptoms of mental illness to be tempted to put up with people harassing or assaulting you so you can get some human connection. In fact, Anne's recollections resonate with my own history. And I've never had bipolar disorder, OCD, or schizophrenia. Anne and I are virtually the same age, at the same time that Anne was struggling with her feelings of wanting this abusive psychologist to hold her, I was in a relationship with a man who would have sex with me when I said I didn't want to. And because I didn't want to have sex, my body was not ready to have sex. And when he rammed his body inside mine, it hurt. I put up with it because, yeah, I wanted, I needed to be held. I was certainly depressed at this time, and I'm anxious basically all the time. So I and countless other women know this experience of non-consensual encounters all too well. Such encounters become even more complicated with additional challenges of unstable perceptions of reality and attempts to trust a clinician whose job it is to help you stabilize those perceptions. Then, at 33, while trying to understand and cope with symptoms that would turn out to be schizophrenia, on top of the three other illnesses she had been negotiating for 15 years, Anne was raped. During the trial, the criminal defense attorney made sure to say her version of events couldn't be trusted because she was a schizophrenic. There is a difference between calling someone a schizophrenic and a person with schizophrenia. These days, clinicians are trained to use person-first language to lessen the stigma of carrying diagnoses that are already inherently heavy enough, but certainly the lawyer knew what he was doing. This trial challenged Anne's mental health so much that she had to be hospitalized and couldn't continue to support the prosecution. She says that, as far as she knows, her attacker went free. By age 29, 
Anne had been six years in a relationship with Herb, a compassionate, loving man, 30 years her senior. She had been earning a bit of money as an artist's model. It was a way of staying in touch with the performer inside her, and, she says, artist's modeling is very respectable. One night, she and Herb were waiting for a bus that never came, and someone mugged them at gunpoint. She was seeing a psychologist to try to address the trauma of the physical attacks and other kinds of violence she had experienced throughout her life. At this time, Anne began traveling into the South Hills each day, taking two buses each way. She would call Herb from payphones, asking, Is someone following me? She believed aliens were coming to get her. She believed she was Jesus. She believed she was one half of conjoined twins, separated at birth, and was condemned to search in vain for her missing twin. She would wander around the suburbs all day. She was not eating, so her weight dropped under 100 pounds. When she came home, she would spend hours on the phone talking to nobody. She had also begun celebrating Shabbat at Temple Sinai, where she had found a community that treated her with tolerance, acceptance, and compassion. But, she says, all of a sudden during services, she would have a convincing thought that the rabbi was her long-lost twin. It didn't matter that it would have been impossible from a genetic standpoint for any conjoined twin of Anne's to be a male. Uncontrolled delusions don't respond to reality testing. They're impervious to evidence. Herb finally 302'd her. In Pennsylvania, 302 is the section of the mental health treatment law that allows for people to be committed involuntarily. And 302ing someone is the colloquial way of saying you had them committed against their will. She was taken to Western Psych and put into a locked ward for six weeks, the booby hatch. Most of the staff, she tells me, treated her with respect, and she felt the psychiatrist at the hospital truly cared about her. Still, she says, she was in physical agony during that hospital stay. Many patients I have assessed upon discharge from inpatient care at the psych ward say the same. The booby hatch is not a pleasant place to spend a few days, let alone almost two months, as Anne did. Herb visited her every day. He helped her bathe. He brought her juice and crackers. He tucked her into bed every night. He saved my life, she says. Anne has been hospitalized a number of times, including once when she was 32, after she stopped taking her antipsychotic medication, a two-month stint in the now-closed Mayview State Hospital. Anne tells me that she couldn't get physically warm during her entire stay at Mayview. She says she asked to be allowed to wear a head covering, and she was told she couldn't have one because if she looked normal, she might run away. Never mind that all the patients were dressed in street clothes. She was told that if she wanted to be discharged, she would need to be more energetic. She was also told she drank too much water. The nurse actually snatched the water glass out of my hand, Anne says. On one hand, she was told to do certain things. Then, later, she says, my psychiatrist would tell me cryptically 
that I wasn't being assertive enough. I tried to be compliant. I did everything he said. Herb took two buses each day to visit her in the state hospital. He brought her food, he brought her company, and he brought her love. They had decided to get married a few times before, and Anne had always called it off. Seeing his dedication to her during this hospitalization, she thought she could never find a more loving partner. I planned my wedding from the hospital, she recalls. I bought three engagement rings from the gift shop, each looking exactly like a diamond engagement ring and each costing $5. I bought three so I'd have spares in case I lost some. She married Herb, and they were together for several more years until he passed away. Over the years, Anne and her doctors have come up with a medication regimen that has stabilized her moods and kept her delusions at bay. For schizophrenia, she takes clozapine, an atypical antipsychotic medication that, like many antipsychotics, comes with risks of significant side effects, including metabolic problems such as diabetes. Anne has taken clozapine for 22 years and has gained a great deal of weight. It's heartbreaking to me how much weight I've gained, she says. I used to work as a print model, and I loved doing that. I've had to deal with a lot of self-hatred because of my weight. Anne's Facebook profile picture shows a slim woman in her 20s dressed in a diaphanous black gown, wearing a pair of roller skates, performing an arabesque. Recently, Anne did a photo shoot for a story in Western Psych's in-house magazine about her participation in Infinity. I was apprehensive about that, she says. Then I thought, what the heck? I can be a plus-size model. I put on my green velvet dress and my pearls. I looked good. I call it choosing sanity over vanity, which is what I've had to do. She doesn't dare risk stopping her clozapine because she says simply, it works. She also takes aripiprazole, commonly known as Abilify, another atypical antipsychotic which helps prevent delusions and stabilizes her bipolar disorder. I don't take any meds for OCD, she says. I just check things a lot. She sometimes hears voices telling her that terrible things are going to happen to her or that people dislike or are laughing at her. Sometimes it comes back, she says. Sometimes I'll see a picture in the paper and think, they're imitating me. It'll be like an old twinge, and then I'll tell myself, I don't have to believe that. I asked her what skills she uses to help herself stay in touch with reality, and she immediately replies, I take my medicine assiduously. She also keeps in touch with people in her life. That helps me focus on what's real, she says. She sometimes zones out and loses the thread of conversations, but she practices mindfulness during daily walks, visiting the mailbox-sized libraries scattered throughout her neighborhood. This is one big way she has coped with the pandemic. She couldn't go to temple, and because her father is so old, she had to socially distance rigorously. A great deal of scientific evidence exists to show that mindfulness, 
the act of noticing whatever is happening in the present moment eases suffering for people with a variety of mental and physical illnesses. I try to lift my mind out of everyday tours, she says, using the Yiddish word for troubles. I try to lift myself out of the daily grind and focus on nature and people and dogs I see outside. My illnesses have really destroyed my ability to read, but I look for books at the little libraries because even though I can't read very well, it's like, here's a piece of my life that's being changed because of this book. I read cookbooks. I write gratitude lists. I call them positive perceptions. I try to write down the positive way of looking at situations in my life. My therapist helps me a lot because I can be extremely hard on myself, and she talks me through stuff and helps me get out of that rut. Anne's mental illnesses, when they are under control, are largely invisible to other people. Her disability doesn't require her to walk using a cane or to talk with sign language or to wear hearing devices. She has learned very well what she has to do to fit in. Among the skills she uses to cope with her mental illnesses are the acting skills she learned in college. People are surprised when they find out I have mental illness because I present so well. I have to use all my acting skills, Anne says. One thing I hear her saying here is that her acting skills help her make it easier for other people to be around her. What if it were the other way around? What if folks without mental illness had to learn skills that enabled them to interact with folks with mental illness? If young kids are not educated in the skill of empathy, they turn into cruel creatures who pick on others who don't look like them. Overweight kids who get chosen last for teams, socially awkward kids who get teased or poked with pencils, kids who have panic attacks or obsessive-compulsive behaviors, counting all the objects in their desks over and over, washing their hands even when they're not dirty, repeating words out loud or moving their bodies in odd ways to make themselves feel safe, who nobody sits with at lunch. Eventually, cruel kids grow into adults who don't know how to speak with someone who sometimes thinks she's Jesus and who avoid anyone whose speech or behavior are outside their ken. So it's possible to see that people who don't know how to talk to someone with mental illness are the ones who are lacking in social skills, not the ones with mental illness. Anne has a number of suggestions for improving life in Pittsburgh for people who have disabling mental illness. First on her list is improving public transportation. Twice while taking an acting class, Anne was stranded at night because her Lyft or Uber apps would not work. Because folks with serious mental illness by and large do not drive, and because Anne was attacked while waiting for a bus that didn't come, she believes that public transit should be funded better and expanded, especially at night. She also suggests any organization in which mental health clients want to participate should address and make available rides to and from their programs. Her second suggestion is to create more affordable housing that is integrated throughout the city. 
Since her early 30s, she has had stable, safe housing. But in her late 20s, she lived in a neighborhood where, she says, I had to call the police every night because of gunshots nearby. I never felt safe, and there was no peace and quiet. Folks in recovery from mental health difficulties, such as paranoid schizophrenia, benefit greatly from safety. Or rather, their recoveries are made much more difficult with surges of stress hormones and a sense of constant threat that may be too similar to the delusions they're trying to hold at bay. Third, Anne has a great many ideas for improvements to psychiatric hospitals. Anne would locate her better booby hatch on a lot big enough to let patients have time outdoors on a daily basis. She'd have the architects design a gym and swimming pool so patients could get exercise. She'd pay her psychiatrist to spend more time than a few minutes with clients on their daily rounds. She would establish a routine in which patients would have access to a therapist for an hour every day for ongoing care and support while being hospitalized. She would give each patient a private room and private bathroom, and in each room, she would place an extra bed so that, as she explains it, immediate family members or close friends and partners can participate in care and advocacy for their loved ones. She would have shuttle transportation for staff and families so that no one is excluded from care or visitation. She would give each patient free telephone service in their rooms and make sure each patient is allowed half an hour per day to use their cell phones and laptops so they can remain connected to folks outside. She notes, since the current issue of those being forbidden has to do with the privacy of others, staff could supervise clients to make sure these are only used in the room at certain times. She would design a full-service cafeteria where patients would have a choice of healthy foods, and she would pay attention to the hospital's aesthetics. The building would be beautiful with open spaces and full of natural light and outdoor vistas. There would be a lot of artwork secured for safety, and furniture would be designed for aesthetics, not just functionality. There would be a large lobby where people can socialize with beverages and snacks available. She prefaces all these suggestions with the qualifier that they would constitute a facility where the standard of living and care is so high that clients actually want to go there when they need to be in the hospital. Of course, many of these suggestions aren't practical for an urban hospital such as WPH that serves as a center of research and teaching. Psychiatric inpatients don't get an hour of therapy every day because, for one thing, that costs a lot of money. For another, this might encourage undue dependence on the mental health system, and the whole idea is to help patients recover well enough to live outside the locked doors. There's also the question of security, not just that of the patients or clients, as Anne prefers to call them, thus restoring some of their power, who may not necessarily be able to keep themselves safe, but also that of the staff and visitors. In 2012, 
a 30-year-old man entered the ground floor lobby of WPH with two semi-automatic handguns and started shooting. He killed a 25-year-old therapist and wounded seven other people before police fatally shot him. In an effort to avoid a repeat of this atrocity, the first floor was reconfigured and all doors but one were blocked off. For years, I was a regular visitor to the psychiatric library inside that building, and we used to be able to enter through a side door to get to the library. Now, everyone except those with an employee badge passes through a single door into a set of huge metal detectors, and all bags are examined. The security apparatus itself takes up much of the ground floor, so a hotel-style lobby with snacks and artwork such as Anne and Visions, wouldn't be possible, at least not in that building. But in her reflections, I hear Anne dreaming, which is not to say she's engaging in -in pie-in-the-sky imaginings. Rather, I hear her exploring and expressing her deep, considered desires for her community to support people like her, who may, at the drop of a hat, have to commit themselves or be committed to a hospital stay of indefinite duration. Imagine you really need a break from some fantastically stressful times that have you unable to sleep at night or work well during the day. So you book a flight to, say, Australia, and when you get to your high-rise hotel in Sydney, you find out the food sucks and there's no place to work out. And on top of that, the porter takes your wallet and all your devices and tells you the doors are locked and you look at your bed, and the pillow is thin, and the twin mattress is covered in vinyl. This is what it might be like to move into a psychiatric hospital so you can relax, recover, and stop looking for the conjoined twin of your delusions. They're going to keep you safe, and they're going to keep themselves safe, and they're going to keep the rest of the world safe, all at great personal cost to you. It makes sense to me that Anne would dream of having a place to walk outside every day, a place to swim on rainy days, a shuttle to bring her elderly dad to and from the hospital, a therapist to talk to as much as she wants. If I were her, I would also want some little libraries posted throughout the halls and grounds. It makes sense to me that she would want some high-quality specialty food in the full-service cafeteria. She's a vegan. I hear her saying she's not a crazy lady who sometimes thinks she's Jesus. She's an intelligent, well-educated, hard-working, articulate woman who has reasonable desires that matter and that, if fulfilled, might actually make a difference in her recovery and therefore in her community. Anne's last suggestion for improving life in Pittsburgh communities for people with mental illness is to endow those people with more visibility in the community. This means more articles, news coverage, books, events, and general PR about the lives we live in the mental health system, she says. This will combat the stereotyping, discrimination, and isolation most of us experience. It will, that is, if the coverage is informed and if it seeks to undo the stigma and fear surrounding disabling mental illnesses such as schizophrenia. 
One example of the way the press is generally ill-informed about mental illness and participates in stereotypes is the number of stories written each year reinforcing the popular belief, one might even say the collective delusion, that gun violence and mass shootings are by and large committed by people with mental illness. Epidemiologic studies show that the vast majority of people with serious mental illnesses are never violent against other people. On the other hand, research shows mental illness is strongly linked with an increased risk of suicide, an extreme form of violence against oneself, and suicides account for more than half of American firearms-related deaths. Anne said one reason she loves Temple Sinai is that they're committed to the agenda of destigmatizing mental illness and pushing back against stereotypes. They've hosted a number of programs to help its members and the community at large understand mental illness, and Anne has participated in these because she considers herself to be an advocate, not just a client. And then there is her musical group, Infinity, which is also increasing awareness that people with serious mental illness can do things that ordinary folk may not think they are capable of doing, thereby showing that they themselves are not social outliers, but ordinary people with sorrows and joys, nightmares and dreams, abilities, desires, lives. Anne's participation in Infinity has given her back a great deal of joy that her illnesses, and also some of the treatments, have robbed of her. She has been stable for a number of years in her recovery, but she often still feels so much uncertainty. Is she really allowed to dream again? Will she ever be able to do things that she has wanted to do since she was young and imagined being on stage? I'm trying to accept the fact that I may not progress past a certain point, Anne says. It's hard for me because I haven't had the kind of vocal training I should have had. I don't read music. The mental illness interferes with both those things. I'd like to believe that I can someday be an actor and a singer, but I'm trying to make peace with the issues I'm facing and say, if nothing else, I did progress to a certain point, even with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and everything else. But it's hard for me to accept that I still have a long way to go. There's a paradox here because part of what I'm doing is to say, this is what mental illness looks like and can accomplish. Look what people with mental illness can do. I've had a lot of loss over my lifetime, especially professionally. But things are happening now that make me feel like my work with Flavio is the right work at the right time. I tell everybody about my mental illness, and now I also tell them about what I do. It's time for all these things to move forward in my life and in society, and I feel glad to be a part of that. Anne Alter responds to learning to dream again. When I first drafted this response a couple months into working with Jen, I was still in the honeymoon stage of the project. I was still enamored of the idea of being featured in a book and being able to share my experiences with mental health issues and advocating for myself. 
but it's not so easy to bare your soul about many of the topics mentioned here. Jen suggested that I include some of my deeper feelings about the process. Wow. The process was hard as heck. First, I had to take a leap of faith and trust Jen. She certainly earned my trust. She was respectful, patient, and careful in working with me. She was clear about what she wanted and envisioned for this project. She was also a badass. She was relentlessly quick, focused, and thorough. A force of nature. Keeping up with her freed me to be honest and forced me to be a better, clearer, more careful writer. I learned from her about allowing spirit to animate writing. She put me back in touch with the writer I used to be when I was unapologetic about being strong. On this project, I could let my truth speak through me, knowing that Jen would help me present my story in a way that people would understand. Most of all, Jen presented my story with compassion, making it easier for me to sign off on this process that demanded such truth and introspection. Also, this project has been an emotional roller coaster comprised of pride, shame, excitement, trepidation, fear, trust, willingness, and defensiveness. Jen was absolutely right that my emotions would be opened up, and they were, like an overflowing bunch of popcorn kernels. I would like to note that I have managed, despite everything, to do some meaningful work in the creative and performing arts. Over the years, I have been merging my mental health advocacy work with my creative and performing work. I did stand-up comedy at my temple about my experience with mental illness. As Jen wrote, I have been singing with a group of musicians who have schizophrenia. I have also read accounts of my brain adventures to groups of people ranging from young doctors to temple members. And during the pandemic, I have written essays on my Facebook timeline entitled Plague Diaries, Booby Hatch Chronicles. Over most of my life, I have fought back against my illness by working in many other capacities. From childhood onward, I have sporadically taught ice skating, horseback riding, and dance, and tutored speakers of Japanese and English. I was offered the chance to train for the Olympics in ice skating. I have acted for theater, video, and film, done modeling work for art, print, and performance art, and have been a technician for theater and film. So I have gone from a rather detached philosophical view of the process to a more immediate, emotional, and forceful way of looking at my words and the words about me. I am thankful for Jen, for the project, and for the opportunity to be heard.